Well, if you have been at Trinity Bible Church for any amount of time, you may have already been aware that typically our church has sermon series based on books of the Bible, where we walk through books of the Bible in order to be shaped by God's Word. And this is a good practice because it keeps us from overemphasizing or underemphasizing certain parts of Scripture, which we all have our favorites. When we go through a book of the Bible and we come to a hard chapter, for instance, we are forced to reckon with what the text actually says. That's a good thing. It keeps us always in line with the Word of God. We always want to be more and more conformed in the way we think, in our worldview, and in our doctrinal commitments to what the Bible teaches. So in many ways, preaching through books of the Bible is a good and safe practice for the church to be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. In many ways, I think that's the best of expositional preaching. However, at times, our church breaks away from this practice for a variety of reasons in order to focus on a particular topic, whatever that topic may be, and this can be really beneficial in the life of our church, depending on what the topic is, a topical study may prepare us to think biblically about issues in our culture, or maybe issues in our personal lives, issues in the workplace, issues in our church. And focusing on a particular topic can give us a chance to think more systematically and theologically about how we should think about whatever that particular topic may be. And one of the topics that, of course, is always relevant for us to wrestle with is the topic that we're going to spend the next few weeks considering together, namely the church. That seems like an obvious thing to say, right? We are always wrestling with who are we as a church? What's the nature of the church? What's the function of the church? So in the pew in front of you, on the back of the pew in front of you, there there should be a sermon schedule card. And if you look in uh, the months of April and May, you'll see that several, several sermons are already listed for you there so you can know where the sermon series is going. We'll be focusing together on the series, which is called Churchology, as it has been affectionately named. We'll be focusing together on what does it mean to be the church. We'll be asking questions like, who are we? Why do we exist? Where do we come from? What does the future hold for the church? What does it mean to be the church? What sorts of things should the church be doing? Whether it's in the Sunday service or outside the context of that service, who leads the church? What constitutes godly leadership in the church? What are the privileges of the congregation? What are the responsibilities of the congregation? How much emphasis should we place on things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, things like church membership? Today, as we get started into this series, we are focusing on what might be called a biblical theology of the people of God, which is kind of a fancy phrase to just say, who are we? Who is the people of God in the scriptures? And why do we think today the church is the people of God? To be really clear, when we ask these kinds of questions about churchology, we are thinking of more than 
the last 50 years of our individual local church's history, which is 50 years the length of our existence as a local church in the valley, we're thinking much more broadly than that. We're even thinking much more broadly than our connectedness to evangelicalism in America, or even more broadly than that, the Protestant tradition coming out of the Reformation 500 years ago. Today, we're thinking at a very broad level, biblically and theologically, what does the Bible say about who the church is, is and is meant to be? How does the church's existence, the last 2,000 years includes that, how does that relate to things like Jesus' life, death, resurrection, Good Friday, Easter? How does it relate to that? And how do the people of God in the Old Testament, we typically use the word Israel to describe that people, how does that people relate to us today? My main goal for you this morning, I don't want you to fall asleep, but... If you're going to fall asleep, I want you to leave somehow today with an understanding for who we are as the church. I want you to leave being astonished at the wisdom and goodness of God in creating the church. I want you to leave with your hearts filled with gratefulness for the mercy that God has shown us in Christ to bring people like you and people like me into the fold I want you to believe that the history of God's dealings with his people in the entire history of redemption, in all of that, that it is a great time to be saved. It is a great time in salvation history to be a part of the people of God. In order to get at that goal, today we're going to focus on 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. You'll be helped if you have your Bibles in front of you. If you want to turn there in the Pew Bible, it's on pages 1014 and 1015. In many ways, we're going to look at other texts today as well, but 1 Peter 2 is going to be the hub of the texts. 1 Peter 2 is the place where we're going to launch from and continually come back to. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, and uh, read with me, uh, verses 4 through 10. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
If you're taking notes, I have a, a main point, which we're going to divide into two points. So the main point, if you're taking notes, is simply that the church is the people of God because the church belongs to Jesus. The church is the people of God because the church belongs to Jesus. So the first point in my sermon is that the church is the people of God, and the second point is because the church belongs to Jesus. And then we'll conclude and call it a morning. The church is the people of God because the church belongs to Jesus. I want to start by rereading verses 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, which say so clearly that the church is God's people. So reread it with me. Verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I don't know how Peter can state any more clearly that the church is the people of God from verses 9 and 10. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are. That seems to me to be pretty clear. You are the people of God. There was a time when you had not received God's mercy, but now you have, is what Peter's saying. Therefore, you are the people of God. You have received his mercy. Peter is writing to Christians who live in modern-day Turkey in a bunch of provinces back then. You can see the names of those provinces in the first verse of the letter. He's writing to Christians spread out over all of modern-day Turkey. As far as we can tell, these Christians had been living in rather pagan ways before they came to know Christ. Chapter 1, verse 18, describes their former life as futile, futile ways inherited from your forefathers. They were not God's people at one time, but now they are, Peter's saying in verses 9 and 10. Now you are. There was a time in your life, you Christians, that you had not received mercy, but now you have. You have now been ransomed, chapter 1 says, you've been freed or ransomed from your sins, from that futile way of living. You have been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And you have guaranteed for you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's as good as God is. It's kept in heaven by God for you who believe. So at one time you weren't the people of God, but now you are, is what he's saying in verse 10. You have all the blessings that would accompany being the people of God. I think verse 9 is equally as clear as verse 10 in its own way. You know, verse 9 has four phrases describing the church. Number one, it calls the church a chosen race. Number two, a royal priesthood. Number three, a holy nation. And number four, a people for God's own possession. 
four phrases unpacking who the church is today. And I think together, those four phrases tell us the church is really special to God. It is a special group that God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light so that now the job of the church is to say how awesome God is. Or as it says, we proclaim his excellencies. What does it mean to be a chosen race? Well, a race is a group of people that you might say shares a fundamental commonality and kinship. The church is a special group of people that shares a fundamental bond, a fundamental kinship. We'll ask how that is in a moment, but still that's what the church is. I'm looking at you. There's significant ways in which you and I are different. But there's also, if you're a Christian, significant commonalities between us. We are a race, you might say. And not only are we a race, but we're a chosen race. A special word here. I think this word chosen means we have been specially called out of darkness by God into his marvelous light. It's like God said, out of all the groups of people on the face of the earth, I'm going to choose for myself, can you hear the special language here? We choose for myself one people out of that darkness and call that people into my marvelous light so that they can proclaim how excellent I am to the nations. There will be one race, as it were, or one people specially chosen. There's a uniqueness there, isn't there, to the people of God. And that's true of the church. The church is also called a royal priesthood in this verse. The church is a collection of people that together form a priesthood. We are, did you know this about yourself? We are an order of priests. If you know anything about priests... Priests are people who are especially devoted to God. They have been ordained, consecrated to the special service and worship of God. They have exclusive access, you might say, into the presence of God, especially for purposes of worship. And the the key here in this phrase is that it's not just some of the super special Christians who are in that category. Rather, we are a royal priesthood together. We are all, as Christians, priests before our God. And just in, think, and just in case you think the church is maybe an insignificant priesthood, Peter says it's a royal priesthood. It's not just a collection of individuals who are rather insignificant, but rather these individuals happen to be kings. High language that Peter has to describe the church. Again, I'm, I'm hoping you'll leave this morning astonished at what God has done in creating the church. Another phrase in verse 9 says that the church is a holy nation. I want to stop here for a moment and ask, in what sense is the church a nation? The the Bible's pretty clear the church is not identified with one particular nation on the earth, but rather the church is international. The United States of America, for instance, is not the church. 
nor is any other country today equated with the church on earth. There should be, in your mind, a pretty clear distinction between what we might say is the church and state. I think that's biblical. Rather, the church is international. It crosses things like ethnic and geopolitical boundaries and commitments and allegiances. Many peoples and many tribes and many language groups will be represented around the throne of God. Revelation's very clear on this point. And together they are the church as an international group of people. So in what sense does Peter say of the church today, you are a holy nation? I think in the sense the church is a nation in the sense that it's fundamentally the people of God. There is an underlying unity within the church that is forged by the gospel. There's a common bond that binds us together that runs deeper than I think any other bond in your life. We have a common citizenship, Paul says. It happens to be a citizenship in heaven. That's national language, but our nation is heaven. And we together proclaim a monarchy, don't we? The lordship of Jesus the King. We have a charter or a constitution that guides us for life. It's called the law of Christ, or maybe better, the new covenant. It's our charter by which we live. Paul says this powerfully in Ephesians 2. Christians are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In that sense, very fundamental sense, the church is very much a nation. But it's a nation with citizens from all the nations of the earth. We belong, as Hebrew says, to a city and a country not made by human hands, whose builder An architect is God. In that sense, we are very much not just an insignificant group. We are a nation, aren't we? Unlike any nation seen in the world today. The final phrase in verse 4 that describes the church is that the church is a people for God's own possession. And and, And I think that phrase is a way of saying how special the church is to God. You might say the church is a kind of treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. The church is the apple of God's eye. Elsewhere, of course, the church is called the bride of Christ. Special terminology describing Jesus' love for this group of people. So in many ways, verses 9 and 10 are clear, aren't they? That the church is... The people of God. The church is not a group that God feels so-so about. He's not half-hearted in his affection for the church. I hope that's clear from verses 9 and 10. We are the people of God. Now, the question at this point, maybe that's in your mind, is how did this happen? How in the world? I'm looking at you. How did that happen? Where we are the people of God. I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. We aren't that special in and of ourselves. Can we affirm that together? Yeah, amen. 
1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 28, says this. I think this is true of Trinity Bible Church. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Yep. Not many were powerful. Yep. Not many were of noble birth. Mm Mm-hmm. But God chose what is foolish in the world, check, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, check, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, Mm -hmm. to bring to nothing things that are. So basically, Paul is saying, you Corinthians are basically a bunch of nobodies. You're insignificant in the eyes of the world. You're nothing, are you? Yep. We aren't impressive to anybody. Those who are deemed to be wise in the world look at the church and say, you're nothing. You're weak. And we say, you're right. We are low, despised, foolish, deemed to be weak in the world. Doesn't seem like we're a chosen race. A royal priesthood, yeah, right. A holy nation, maybe in our dreams. A people for God's own possession doesn't seem very likely given those categories that Paul's given to us, which I think are true of us. Not many of you are significant in the eyes of the world. It's kind of like when God had his choice of the best kids on the playground to be on his basketball team or baseball team, he purposefully chooses the kids who are the slowest, most unathletic kids on the playground. That's true. Why in the world? How did it happen that the slowest, least athletic kids on the playground somehow ended up to be in God's side, his people? How'd that happen is the basic question I'm asking. And what's more, I'm going to push it a little bit more here, the language that Peter uses to describe the church in verses 9 and 10 is language specifically applied to Israel in the Old Testament. Verse 9, if you still have 1 Peter 2 open, verse 9 essentially quotes Exodus 19. Verses 5 and 6, where God promises Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you know that? That's a promise that God made to Israel at the foot of Sinai. Similarly, verse 10 Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 10, it's it's not a quote, but I think it's an allusion to Hosea 2, 23, that says of Israel, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God, which in the context seems to be in reference to a people called Israel. So the question I'm asking is the special language that Peter uses, it's kind of special people of God language, that Peter uses and applies to the church is the same special people of God language that is applied to Israel in the Old Testament. And I'm asking, how'd that happen? 
Not only are we the weak sauce kids on the playground, but also how did the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament end up coming to us? Which I think is what Peter's so clearly saying. I do want to say at, at, at this point, some interpreters of 1 Peter argue, therefore, because of this reality, Peter must have been writing only to Jewish Christians. Because he would never have said that of Gentile Christians. He would never have applied the promises of Israel to the church. With many interpreters, I think it's more likely Peter's writing to Christians in general, both Jewish and Gentile Christians. It seems that Peter's audience is coming out of a rather pagan lifestyle, actually, that isn't expected or befitting a Jewish upbringing. Additionally, the Apostle Paul actually, in Romans chapter 9, quotes the same Hosea chapter 2 text that Peter does in 1 Peter 2.10, and Paul unequivocally applies it to the Gentiles. Same text, but to the Gentiles, unequivocally. My sense of the matter is Peter and Paul are saying the exact same thing. So the question remains, how'd that happen? How did the church get its status as the special people of God? How did the church become the beneficiary of God's special people of God promises to Israel. And this leads me to my second point. If you're following, remember it's pretty basic this morning. The church is the people of God is point number one. And point number two is because the church belongs to Jesus. So the church is the people of God because the church belongs to Jesus. I'm arguing here that the church is the beneficiary of God's promises to Israel, not because God somehow forgot that he made those promises. God never reneges right, on his promises. Never. So why is this? Because the church belongs to Jesus. More precisely, we could put it this way, the church gets its identity from Jesus. The church is the new creation of Jesus. If you ever wonder, you know, I'm not wise according to worldly standards, I'm not powerful, I'm not of noble birth, I'm really pretty foolish in the eyes of the world, I'm really pretty weak in the eyes of the world, I'm low, I'm despised, I'm a nobody, then the point to remember is you belong, if you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. And that actually trumps everything else. You belong to the Lord, and therefore your identity, your status, the privileges and responsibilities that come to you are because you belong to him. You are the recipient of all of God's saving promises, but not because God somehow changed his mind, but rather it's in Christ, you see. How do I know from this text in 1 Peter 2 that the church belongs to Jesus? I think in many ways this is obvious, but I just want to show you what the text says. Notice in verse 4, verse 4 says, as you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then if we skip verse 5 down to verse 6, it says, it stands, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, who, who is this living stone in verse 4 who is then rejected by men 
but who is in the sight of God chosen and precious. Who's that living stone? Or in verse 6, who is the cornerstone chosen and precious? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? He's called the Lord in verse 3. I think it's the Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He's the living stone that then gives rise to living stones. Did you notice how Jesus is described as a stone? He's called a chosen stone. Did you see that? He's chosen and precious. But that's the exact same word, isn't it? That's used in verse 9 to describe the Christians. How did it happen that Christians are somehow chosen as a race? It has a lot to do with Jesus being chosen and precious as the cornerstone or as the living stone. Or again, note the link between verses 4 and 5. How does verse 5 happen? Verse 4 says, as you come to him, you yourselves, in verse 5 says, you're like living stones being built up like a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The question is, how do we become that? How do we become living stones or a spiritual house, which is temple language? How did we get our priesthood, which Peter affirms in verse 9? How'd that happen? Why are our priestly sacrifices acceptable to God? It's because verse 4 says, we come to him. That's why. Because we come to Jesus, therefore this is true of us. You don't make an end run around Jesus and somehow end up as a part of the people of God. There's no way to do that. You have to come to him, verse 4 says. You come to him because he's actually the stone, the single stone upon which the entire foundation of the people of God rests. If you take him out of the mix or the equation, your equation or your mix fall apart. You're not in. There is no priesthood. There's no sacrifices that God will be deeming acceptable unless, verse 6 says, I'm sorry, verse 5 says, unless it's through Jesus Christ. So I think in many ways this is basic Christianity, but I want to say it so clearly. If you want to be a part of the people of God, go to Jesus. Verse 7 says, this honor is for you who believe. Faith in Christ brings life. But of course, there's a warning for those who don't believe in verse 7. For those, it says in verse 7, who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Verse 8 ends by saying they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I think the word there is the word of the gospel. They don't believe the gospel about Jesus. And so for them, they stumble over Jesus. And Jesus, as it happens to be, is the cornerstone. And if you stumble over him, he'll fall on you. Destruction will come. And so the church is who we are because of Jesus. Not apart from Jesus, but it's as much as we belong to Jesus by faith by repentance of our sins, to that same degree, we are beneficiaries of the promises of God. I want to ask a question here. 
that, again, is kind of basic, but I think if you're going to get the Bible right, you need to get this question right in your heads, okay? And the question is, what is it about Jesus that is so significant for the church? Why is it that it's only through Jesus that I end up becoming a beneficiary of God's people? Why can't I somehow just say, Jesus, I'm going to go this other way, and I'm still going to get in, right? Why is that not true? Why, why is Jesus so significant here? And I'm just going to give you a few minutes of, we might say this is a biblical theology of the people of God. All the way back to Exodus 19, you might remember the story of Israel. Israel was going to be a holy nation. Israel was going to be a kingdom of priests. But there's an if clause in Exodus 19.5. If you obey and keep my covenant, this will be true of you. Whether they would experience the fullness of being God's people, the full blessings that accompany being his people, in many ways there was a condition, wasn't there? It was conditioned upon their obedience. But if you know the history of Israel, did they obey? Largely no. Largely no. There was always a remnant of faithful Israel, but the majority of Israel's story in the Old Testament is one of unfaithfulness. Even at Sinai's foot, they start worshiping a golden calf. So the great blessings of Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, these great blessings that are outweighed actually by the curses in the same chapter, in many ways the blessings weren't ever experienced, at least not in their fullness, by Israel because of their disobedience. And this is why the prophets of Israel, have you read the prophets of the Old Testament? They long for the day when something's going to be different. They long for the day when something will change such that the blessings will finally show up, which largely have been not experienced. They long for the day when not just a remnant would be faithful, but that the entire covenant community would be faithful to God, from the least of them to the greatest. They longed for the day, these prophets did, when God would pour out his spirit and cause his people to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes. The prophets longed for the day when God would finally forgive the sins of his people, the day when no more atoning sacrifice was needed because a final atoning sacrifice had come. And they longed for the day when God would finally bring a son of David who would fulfill God's promises to David and would reign on David's throne forever and ever. My brothers and my sisters, this day has come in Christ. Certainly there's something still to come. But this day has come already in Christ. Jesus has arrived on the scene, hasn't he? We just celebrated Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And we learned that the promises of God really are yes in Jesus. When Jesus arrived on the scene 2,000 years ago, he was faithful to God in every way. He was the faithful Israelite. In every way that Israel was unfaithful, he wasn't unfaithful. He was the son of Abraham. Not just a son of Abraham, but the son of Abraham. You might say the one descendant of Abraham that really counts before God. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. He's the one that really counts. He's the son of David. If we want to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, I think it's right to say that he's the faithful Adam. Therefore, 
the condition unmet by Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 was met perfectly by Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life under the law. The condition of the covenant was met. And so, is God faithful to keep his promises? Yes, every time. So the blessings for covenant faithfulness are sure to follow Jesus' act of obedience. Is it a surprise to you that the hope of the prophets is therefore fulfilled in Jesus' people? Has final forgiveness of sins come to us this morning? Did Good Friday happen? It did. Was Jesus really the king who will reign forever on David's throne? I think Easter Sunday says that as loudly as you can say it. Yes, he has been established on Zion's holy hill right now and is reigning forevermore. Did the Spirit get poured out after Jesus' ascension? Absolutely. Was that an accident of history? No, but rather it was because Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension procured it for us. He sent the Spirit from heaven to give his people new hearts. And if you know Pentecost theology in Acts chapter 2, it's not just a few members of the church who have the Spirit, but all of them, don't they? All of them. Therefore, the entire covenant community is new. The notion of the remnant becomes passe, doesn't it? When the Spirit arrives, because he's poured out on all flesh, it says. In this sense, if you're following me, the church is not Israel all over again. I think Peter is saying the church is an upgrade because we have final forgiveness. We have the days that the prophets longed for. I would much rather be a member of the people of God today than in 1000 BC, hands down. You might say this is Israel 2.0. The church really is. The beneficiaries and recipients of God's saving promises to his people, how'd that happen? Well, Jesus happened. That's how it happened. Jesus won for all of his people the covenant blessings. I want to summarize by saying, if there's a hero in Trinity Bible Church, let's be really clear, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. We are who we are because Jesus has come. We are, are do you believe this? We are the beneficiaries of God's promises to his people. We belong to the family of Abraham. We belong to the family of Israel. We belong to the family of David. All these things, but not because that's who we are in ourselves, but that's who Jesus is. And everything that's true of the king, it's true of the people of the king. The church doesn't play second fiddle to anyone because of Jesus. And so let me close today by saying two things. I don't know if this will be true of any of you, but I don't want these things to be true in one sense. If you have a high view of Jesus this morning, and I hope that you do, make sure that you have a high view of the church. If you have a high view of Jesus, you must have a high view of the church. It is not an option for you to say, I love Jesus, but the church is optional, whether or not I have any affection for that group of people or not. Not an option. Because the church belongs to Jesus, right? The church is the, God, the people of God. 
because it belongs to Jesus. Therefore, it's not an option to say, I'll take Jesus, but not the church. High view of Jesus, low view of the church. Not an option. This doesn't mean that the church can do no wrong. Nor is it true that Christians and the church have everything together. Sometimes you might think that. We don't. There are issues in our own hearts. It doesn't mean that the church is going to have an easy go of it in the world. We don't. And we won't. But it does mean that the church is unique on the face of the earth. It's unique because of its identity and in its ability to reflect and magnify who God is in the world. If you're looking for a social fraternity, you can find that elsewhere. If you're looking for entertainment, there are other places that you can go. But if you're looking for God and the people of God, you should look to the church. If you're looking for a people who might be called a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for God's possession, the church is where you should look. If you're looking for people whose sins are actually forgiven and who actually bear the marks of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, that's because they do have the Spirit and they have forgiveness in the church. So if you have a high view of Jesus, you should have a high view of the church. The second thing I want to say as we close is perhaps some of you don't have a high view of the church because you don't have a high view of Jesus. Is it possible that there are some of you who say, you know, I can take or leave the church, but actually, if you look into the heart of hearts, it's because you have a relatively low view of Jesus, and that plays itself out in your churchology, do you see? To you, of course, the church isn't all that important because Jesus isn't all that important. And I don't want any of you to leave this morning thinking that Jesus is not all that important. Let no one leave this morning with a relatively low view of Jesus. Don't leave without coming to the living stone this morning. The true priest. He is unique in his ability, Jesus is, and his sufficiency to bring you to God. So come to him. He's the cornerstone of God's people, Peter tells us. If you stand on Jesus as your foundation stone... You know, we sing that song, it's the solid rock. It's true, isn't it? There's no more certain foundation than Jesus Christ. But let you be warned today. Peter's really clear. If you reject him, the cornerstone will be for you a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If you reject him, you have no solid foundation on which to stand. I think this is good for Christians to hear too, right? Because in many ways, the Christian life is a a constant reminder of the gospel that we have such a savior and such a king as Jesus. So come to Jesus. If you have a low view of the church, it might be because you have a low view of Jesus. Today's the day of salvation. Repent of your low view of Jesus and let it have its ramification in your high view of the church. Let's pray together.